On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through 10, if you'll follow along now as I begin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless this reading of his word, and our time together in it, you may be seated. Well, this is our third Sunday in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, where in verses 1 to 3, Paul tells us that we were spiritually dead, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, destined to experience God's wrath, which would have been uh, utterly uh, appropriate, utterly fair and just, because we had offended a holy God with our trespasses and sins, and we were unable to do anything to save ourselves. I mean, that was our condition. And it's the spiritual condition of all men and women apart from Christ. They're hopeless and helpless, unable within themselves to change their condition because spiritually dead people cannot give themselves spiritual life. And then in verse 4 we read, but God. And those two words immediately bring light into the darkness and hope into the hopelessness. In verses 4 to 7, we learn that even though men are spiritually dead, helpless, and in a hopeless situation, there is still great hope because God himself has intervened to save us. I mean, God was under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to save us, and yet he did. And why did he do this? Paul says he was rich or overabounding in mercy, and he did this because of the great love with which he loved us. And the fact that he gave his son in love was not because of anything in us that he regarded as worthy of his affection, but solely because of his great and unfathomable determination to love those who were the moral antithesis of himself and enemies of everything that he regards as holy and true and right. And so because of his rich mercy and great love, God didn't leave us dead in our trespasses. Rather, Paul tells us in verse 5 that God made us alive together with Christ. 
We were spiritually lifeless, morally decayed, deserving of nothing but eternal wrath, and in every way insensible to the beauty and the glory of Christ until God in sovereign mercy and grace brought us from spiritual death and darkness into spiritual life and light. I mean, just as God gave resurrection life to Christ and, and raised Him from the dead, He gave us spiritual life. The initiative, the impulse, the incentive all come from God and are affected by nothing whatsoever outside of His own perfect will. And that is the only way spiritual life can be given to those who are spiritually dead. Regeneration can only happen by the sovereign will and power of God who is the only source and giver of spiritual life. And Paul not only declares that God made us alive together with Christ, in verse 6 we learn that that after he gave us life with Christ, God raised us with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, and that is our position now in Christ. And the question is, why has God done this? You know, why has God done all of this for believers? Well, part of the answer has already been given. God uh, has done so because of the great love with which he loved us. But the full answer is in verse 7 where Paul says it is so that in the coming ages he might show or demonstrate or display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ultimate motivation in God's heart for saving the spiritually dead, raising us and seating us with Christ, is so that we might be trophies of his grace or channels through which or through whom the truth of the magnificence and surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ is made known to all creation in in the coming ages, now and, and throughout the coming ages. And so the heart of Paul's message to his readers up to this point in the passage has been, you were dead, but God is rich in mercy. He's made you alive, gave you spiritual life, and thereby saved you. And his purpose for doing this was to display His grace now and throughout eternity. And as we come to verses 8 to 10 this morning, Paul reiterates what he said in verse 5, that God's grace is the basis for salvation. And Paul's purpose here is to explain to us how in the coming ages uh, the salvation of men can, can be the display of the immeasurable riches of God's grace that he declared it to be in verse 7. It's because salvation from start to finish is a work of God's grace. And so on verses 8 and 9, Paul emphasizes how salvation is a gift of grace and not of works. And let me just say this. In these two verses, we have the gospel in a nutshell. And so anyone here this morning who is not saved or anyone here this morning who is not sure of their spiritual status, I'm begging you to please shut out all distractions and give your full attention to these words of life. Listen as if your life depended on it, because it does. It does. And so in verses 8 and 9, Paul emphasizes how salvation is a gift of grace and not of works. And then in verse 10, Paul tells us how true salvation will always result in good works. So let's look now at verse 8. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, 
It is the gift of God. So Paul begins his explanation by repeating almost word for word his parenthetical statement from verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Here he says, for by grace you have been saved. And grace is the basis for everything that God has done for us. Grace motivated the Father to choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Grace provided the one-time payment for the eternal redemption, the, the blood of Christ who came to earth and died for the forgiveness of our sins. And by grace alone, we receive this forgiveness and salvation. For by grace, Paul says, you have been saved. And to be saved means to be delivered or rescued. In the Old Testament, the terms for salvation and saved most often have to do with God's delivering his people from their enemies. And thus David praises God for saving him from all his enemies in Psalm 18. And, and he is grateful to God for his salvation on the day of victory in war in 2 Samuel 22. But when used in a theological sense, as Paul uses it here, it means to be delivered or rescued from the penalty of sin, which is God's wrath and, and judgment. It means to be delivered from the power of sin. Or as one man said, it is deliverance from the death, slavery, and wrath described in verses 1 to 3. And this word saved is in, in a tense which points to a completed act in the past that has resulted in a present and continuing condition. In other words, Paul is saying you were saved at some point in the past and you are now in a state or condition of salvation. And so from God's point of view, our salvation is complete. From our point of view, it's in progress and won't be completed until we reach heaven. But as far as God is concerned, you have been saved. It's a done deal. And Paul says it is by grace we have been saved. In other words, grace is the means by which men are saved. But what is grace? And I think it's important that we understand what grace is. I mean, the word is used more than 150 times in the New Testament, almost 100 times by the Apostle Paul alone. He's used it six times in the first two chapters, or he uses it six times in the first two chapters of Ephesians and 12 times in the entire epistle. So what does it mean? Well, grace is defined simply as unmerited favor or undeserved benefit. It is undeserved on the part of the recipient. And while that is true, it doesn't go quite far enough. Because grace is God's favor to those who deserved his wrath. And Paul says we were dead in our trespasses, we were at enmity with God and under God's just condemnation, but by his sheer grace alone, not because of something in us, but because of something in him, because as verse 4 says, God is rich in mercy, God saved us and we deserve to be condemned when we were unable to even lift a finger to believe and come to God. Salvation is all of grace. You say, well, how do we know? Paul says it right here. For by grace you have been saved. And this is what Paul has been driving at in this whole section. 
That's why he began chapter 2 by saying that men and women are spiritually dead in sin, unable to contribute anything to their salvation, just as a dead man is unable to raise himself from the grave. I mean, we can no more contribute to our salvation than we can climb to the moon on a rope of sand. To be saved by grace means that we do not deserve what God has granted to us, and we cannot earn it. I mean, we did absolutely nothing to earn or merit salvation. Because if you or I did anything to earn it or deserve it, then it's not grace. If God owes it to you because you're a pretty good person or because you've tried to do the best you can, then it's not grace. If God owes it to you because you initiated your salvation, you know, you chose him and that's the basis on which he chose you, then it's not grace. To be saved by grace is not something that, that happens because of what we are or what we have done, but in spite of what we are and what we have done. Grace means we get the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve wrath because we've sinned against him. Instead, God saves us by his grace. But you see, grace cuts directly against the grain of human thinking. Because grace means that there's no cause in us why God should have acted as he did. But we think the opposite. We think God owes us something. But there is nothing at all within us that has inclined God to choose us. There's absolutely nothing we have done to catch God's attention and earn his favor and deserve salvation and his blessing. I mean, think of it in these terms. If you're a Christian, ask yourself, why are you a Christian? Is it because you're better than others? Is it because you were more intelligent than others? Because you had greater insight than others? Why are you saved and, and not others? Well, the answer is not because of something you did or something better in you, because there is nothing better in you or me. We were not saved because we were smarter than others, you know, prettier than others, or more gifted than others. Our salvation is due to nothing but the free and sovereign grace of God. God has shown us astonishing grace. But you see, we humans naturally resist God's grace, God's grace because it robs us of all of our pride, our pride of accomplishment. Grace robs us of all of that pride. But there's no other way of salvation. For Paul, this is the amazing, glorious good news of the gospel. God saves sinners, and he does so by grace alone. One man explained it this way. It is in spite of us that God forgives us. We are Christian not because we are good people. We are Christian because though we were bad people, God had mercy upon us and sent his son to die for us. We are saved entirely by the grace of God. There is no human contribution whatsoever, and if you think there is, you are denying the central biblical doctrine. 
Loved ones, salvation is all of grace. And this is one reason why Christians should never look down on unbelievers, you know, with the, with the spirit of contempt. We should never do that. I mean, our attitude must be that of a, the classic saying, there but for the grace of God go I, because that's exactly right. We were not saved because of merit or good works. That's Roman Catholicism. We were not saved because of merit or good works, but by grace and by grace alone. Spurgeon wrote, because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them or that ever can be in them that they are saved but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. For by grace you have been saved. Well, how does a salvation as great and as free as that become mine personally? You know, how do we appropriate this for ourselves? We'll look back at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through... What? Faith. Salvation is by grace, but it is also through faith. And please make note of that. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Well, what is faith? Well, faith is the human response. But faith is not a work. There's nothing meritorious about faith. See, salvation is not a cooperative type thing where God contributes the cross and we contribute the faith. No, no, no. No, faith, as we'll see in just a moment, is a gift of God that he produces in the heart. And we exercise, but faith is not a work. So what is faith? Well, very simply, faith is the idea of trusting in, relying on, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as our only Savior from sin and our only hope from heaven based upon the revelation of the person and work of Christ as it's found in the Word of God. As one man said, faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Faith's only function is to receive what grace And the New Testament constantly stresses faith, the the need to believe the gospel message and to trust in God in order to be saved. And so this of necessity means that to be a Christian, we must believe certain things. I mean, you're not a, a Christian if you're simply a kind person, lead a certain lifestyle, are outwardly moral, and and like to attend church. You're a Christian if you believe specific and essential truths which center upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what does this involve? Well, number one, saving faith involves the intellect. No one can think their way into heaven, but neither can they receive Christ as Lord and Savior without some comprehension of the truth. You see, there is content that must be understood. You know, some people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Well, that's utterly ridiculous. That's like saying it doesn't matter what medicine you take as long as you're sincere. 
Well, it matters greatly that you take the right medicine in the right dose. Otherwise, you may die. To be saved, there are certain things you must know about God. Such as God is, is holy and just and righteous, but he's also loving and merciful, gracious and kind. You must also know that you have sinned against this holy God, and therefore you stand guilty and condemned before him. You must know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took upon himself human flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross as the substitute for sinners, paying the penalty for their sin, the penalty that God demands. And so he died because the wages of sin is death. He died, he was buried. After three days, God raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high where he ever lives to make intercession for those who belong to him. And one day he's going to return bodily to judge the living and the dead and to gather all who have trusted in him to take them home to be with him forever and ever. I mean, these are the basic facts revealed in the Bible that you must know to be saved. But having said that saving faith involves intellect, I do not mean by that that faith is mere intellectual assent to certain truths. And the demons believe all of these things. They absolutely believe them, but they're not saved. So, saving faith is not mere intellectual assent to certain truths. It's also a response to such knowledge. So secondly, saving faith involves the emotions. Emotionally, you're affected. You're stirred by the Spirit of God deep within your heart, and so that you are convinced of the truthfulness of the facts, you've come to understand, and, and then you embrace them with sorrow over sin and joy over God's mercy and grace. Saving faith, thirdly, is also volitional. In other words, it involves the will. You surrender your life to Christ, putting your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. One man explained that faith lies in the complete surrender of the heart and life to a divine person. It consists in a throwing down of the weapons of our rebellion against him. It is the total disowning of allegiance to the old master, Satan, sin, self, and a declaring, we will not have this man to reign over us. It is receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, giving him the throne of our hearts, turning over to him the control and regulation of our lives. So saving faith involves the intellect the emotions, and the, and, and the will. And then fourthly, saving faith involves personal commitment. It involves the heart as well as the head. You know, believing God's word, then we, we give ourselves, we commit ourselves to Christ and take him as our own. And this is beautifully illustrated in a wedding ceremony when uh, at, at, at the end of the service, the, the couple commit themselves to one another promising to be faithful to one another uh, as long as they live, promising before God to faithfully live together and love each other regardless of what their future circumstances might be. Well, in the same way, we commit ourselves to Christ for this life and for eternity. And then that commitment will be manifested in our lives. How? By the choices we make, our words, our actions, our behavior, and we are called to be faithful to Christ, 
reliable in his service, ready to defend the truth, and obedient to what he commands. Salvation is by grace, but it's also through faith. And our part is simply to receive the salvation by faith. I mean, faith, one man said, brings a man empty to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith. So we must believe. We must exercise faith. But faith is not a work. Actually, it's something, uh, something created in us by God. How do we know? Well, let's notice what Paul says in the last part of verse 8. Look back at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. In other words, this didn't come from you. You didn't do this. This is not your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, there's debate about what this, in the phrase, and this is not your own doing, uh, it's the gift of God. There's debate as to what this actually refers to. And the debate concerns whether or not this refers to grace, or does it refer to faith? So Paul could be saying that faith is the gift of God, which it is. He could also be saying that the grace by which we are saved is the gift of God, and it certainly is. Or he could even be saying that salvation by grace through faith is God's gift, which it most assuredly is. One of the older commentators and most modern expositors argue that this refers to the entire process of salvation by grace through faith. It's all from God. All from God, not of ourselves. But whichever view you take, I mean, there are other scriptures that show that saving faith and repentance, which are inextricably linked, are not from ourselves, but are God's gift. For example, in Acts 18.27, Luke writes that Apollos greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. In Acts 11.18, the response of the Jewish Christians when they hear of the Gentiles getting saved is, They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In Acts 13.48 we read, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Clement of Rome, who was one of the early pastors of Rome, who was a student of both Paul and Peter, said that the determining factor of one who believes on Jesus Christ is the will of God. Irenaeus, who trained under Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, taught that Christ creates faith by which sinners believe in him. No spiritually dead sinner has the power of choice to believe on Christ apart from divine enabling. Augustine came to understand that faith and grace were all a gift of God by reading 1 Corinthians 4-7, which he said hit him like a ton of bricks. The verse asks, 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Augustine said that caused him to realize if he had faith, it had to be a gift of God because he was no different than anyone else. And so it seems best to take the view that the whole package of salvation is a gift. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. I mean, we should never think of salvation as a transaction in which God provides grace and we provide faith. I mean, that can't be. Why? Because we were dead. We were dead and had to be awakened and enabled to believe. It's all of grace. Yet many in the church today think, wrongly I might add, that all people have within themselves a a little spark of faith that enables them just whenever they wish to, to believe in Christ. I mean, after all, we, we exercise a faith in, in many things every day, don't we? I mean, we have a faith that, that the chair we're about to sit in will actually hold us. We have a faith that our food and water are not going to be contaminated. We have a faith that the doctor who scribbles an unreadable description and the pharmacist who looks at this scribbling hands us the right prescription. We have faith, a faith in the bank. We trust the bank with our, our paychecks, so et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And many people today think that all anyone needs to do is simply transfer that kind of faith to Jesus to be saved. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. Because saving faith is not in any way like the faith we exercise every day in other things. Saving faith is completely different. You see, to the natural man, the cross is what? Absolute foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man is blind to the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4. He's not able to submit to or please God. Romans 8. For the unbeliever in this darkened spiritual state to believe... God must first make him alive. Give him a new life. Spiritual life. Open his heart like he did the woman Lydia in Acts 16, enabling her then to believe in Christ. Spurgeon explained it this way. I ask any man saved to look back upon his own conversion and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ and believed on his name. These were your own acts and deeds. But what caused you thus to turn? Do you attribute this singular renewal to the existence of a something better in you than has been yet discovered in your unconverted neighbor? No. You confess that you might have been what he now is if it had not been that there was a a potent something which touched the spring of your will, enlightened your understanding, and guided you to the foot of the cross. I mean, clearly the gift of God is salvation in its totality. A salvation that flows out of God's grace and becomes ours through faith. 
I mean, from beginning to end, salvation is a gift of God to his elect. It is, it is all of God. I mean, salvation, the Bible says, is of the Lord. Simply put, God initiated our salvation, he implemented it, and he receives, therefore, all the glory. I mean, we could do nothing to start it, cannot contribute anything to it, and therefore we can take no credit for it. It's all of grace. And at this point, Paul could have put a period after, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, and his point would have been adequately made. But just to make sure his readers understand that we cannot contribute to our salvation in any way, shape, or form, Paul explains what he means now by not of your own doing. Look what he says, verse 9. Let me read verse 8 and then verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now notice verse 9. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a result of works. Because if it were of works, if it were something that we could do on our own, some effort that we could put forth, we'd have something to boast about. And I guarantee you, fallen human nature being what it is, we would absolutely be boasting. But we don't have anything to boast about. Because salvation is not a result of works. In fact, salvation by grace is the very opposite of salvation by works. But to accept the Bible's teaching that salvation is not by works means going against the beliefs of our culture and sadly many in the church. But the fact is we are saved either by God's doing or by our own religious and moral efforts. There's no middle ground in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. None. For as Paul said in Romans 11.6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And it is absolutely essential to understand and believe this if you're ever going to be saved. Because if we get this wrong, if we misunderstand salvation by grace and not works, We misunderstand ourselves, our God, and our Savior. We get it all wrong. People are not saved by works. Salvation is not something a person can earn by good works, such as confirmation, baptism, church membership, church attendance, communion, trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Good luck with that. Uh, trying to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, good luck with that too. Giving, being a good neighbor, or living a moral, respectable life. No one is ever saved by works. No one is ever saved by faith plus works. They're saved by grace through faith alone. Grace alone through faith alone. Because the minute you add works of any kind or in any amount as a means of gaining eternal life, salvation is no longer by grace. And I don't think people realize how serious this is. 
the erroneous idea that we can contribute to our salvation by works, by some religious or moral effort, presumes that we are not as spiritually dead as Paul says we are in verses 1 to 3. This unbiblical view says that we have some innate capability to get ourselves back into God's good graces, to earn God's favor, and to merit eternal salvation. But the biblical truth of salvation by grace says, no, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead. Dead means dead. And therefore, if we are ever to be reconciled to God, it will have to be the doing, not of dead sinners, but of the living God. Not only that, salvation by works misrepresents the very character of God. It pictures God as needing to be paid off in order to bestow His kindness. But this is impossible because according to Romans 11.35, God cannot be indebted to anyone. Salvation by grace says that God is not like that at all. Grace proclaims that God saves, loves, and rescues sinners out of the richness of His mercy, His great love, the exceeding riches of His grace, and His kindness toward us in Christ. Thirdly, salvation by works assumes that something needs to be added to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, this line of thinking goes, but we must do something about our sins too. Almost as if to say the blood of Christ is not quite enough to atone for our sins. On the contrary, salvation by grace insists that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are enough that we do not need to add anything to the finished work of Christ, that His sacrifice has appeased God's wrath against us, and that there is nothing left to be done to merit our salvation because Christ Jesus has paid it all, and therefore God can show kindness to us and can make us alive together with Christ with absolutely no strings attached and with no bill coming to us in the mail. Fourthly, If anyone could be saved by his own good works, then the death of Christ was unnecessary. But we know that the reason he died was because there was no other way by which guilty sinners could be saved. Number five, if anyone could be saved by his own good works, then he would be his own savior. And he could worship himself. But of course, this would be idolatry, which God absolutely forbids. And number six, even if someone could be saved through faith in Christ plus his own good works, you would have the impossible situation of two saviors, Jesus and the sinner. Christ would then have to share his glory as the Savior with another, and that he absolutely will not do. But thank God we are not saved by works or by faith plus works. We are saved by grace. To think that we could be saved by works is utterly absurd. Because even our best works are tainted by sin and can never ever come close to the righteous standard which God demands. No matter how high we climb our moral ladder, it will never be high enough. 
All of our good works were tainted by sin. You could take all of, all of your good works, all the, all the best things that you think you have ever done, all, all of your good works in your entire life and bring them before God. And you know what he says of them? He said they're a pile of filthy rags. Actually, the language is much stronger than that. Filthy rags. Salvation is not by works. We can try, but, but all our works will not amount to anything more than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. As one man said, if salvation came by works, eternity would spawn a fraternity of rung-dropping, chest-thumping boasters, an endless line of celestial Pharisees, God, I thank you that I'm not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. In Jesus' parable of the sheep, he writes, and and the goats in Matthew 25, the goats on his left do all the boasting and are sent to judgment. The sheep on his right, the saved who go to their heavenly reward, cannot even recall their good deeds. For salvation does not come by works. No one who is saved will have grounds to boast before God or for that matter, will even want to. Salvation is not by works, but by grace. It is all of grace, so that no one can boast. As Paul wrote in Titus 3, uh, verses 5 and 6, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I love that line from Augustus Toplady's great hymn, Rock of Ages, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And you can't cling to the cross if you have something in your hands, can you? We come with empty hands because we have nothing to offer, absolutely nothing to offer, nothing to merit salvation. No works that that we have done can ever make us right with God or acceptable to God. We come with empty hands and and cling to the cross. You know, another verse, another line said, Foul I to the fountain fly, Savior, wash me lest I die. Works will never get a man into heaven. The only work that can get us into heaven is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God says salvation is by grace, not a result of works, not by anything that we can do. And that is the truth. You can take that to the bank. Because that's not what I say, it's what the Bible says. And now having stated that our salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, Paul wants to make very sure that we understand that true faith, genuine salvation, will always result in good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
For we are his workmanship. Not our workmanship, his workmanship. And the Greek word translated workmanship essentially means a thing made. A thing made. And this word was used for any finished product, especially for a work of art, such as a painting, a statue, a song, architecture, a piece of literature, or or a poem. I suppose you could translate it as masterpiece. One uh, paraphrase does. And this word is used uh, in only one other place in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where it is translated, the things that have been made. And it refers to the material creation. In the heavens and earth which display the, the, the glory of God's material creation. But nature is not God's ultimate workmanship or his ultimate masterpiece. Well, if nature isn't God's ultimate workmanship, his ultimate masterpiece, what is? Well, man is without a doubt the apex of God's creation because no angel can rival him because no angel is made in the image of God. Yet as wondrous a creation as man is, he is not the masterpiece spoken of in our text as God's workmanship. The ultimate workmanship of God is a human being who, despite being dead in his transgressions and sins, has been made alive in Christ. This is a greater work than the creation of the universe because it costs the Son, the Father, and the Spirit everything, and because it involved the unparalleled power of the resurrection. And so not only has the believer been created physically by Christ, by whom all things were created, the believer has also been born again. As Paul says here in our verse, he has been created in Christ Jesus. And Paul uses the word created to show that when God was dealing with the problem of human sin, he didn't do a repair job. No, he created something new. You know, a Christian is not a repaired sinner. He is a new creation in Christ. And this is only possible if God does the creating. I mean, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I mean, think of it. Just think of it. God takes the raw material of human nature as described in verses 1 to 3. And he does something absolutely staggering with it. I mean, human nature is so twisted and warped by sin, so full of flaws and and imperfections. I mean, it would take a workman of infinite skill to do absolutely anything with it. And of course, God is such a workman. And there's no raw material that God cannot work with. And it's a good thing because this is our only hope. There's no one so deep in sin that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. I mean, no matter what the sin, God has the power and the grace to deal with it. So God's greatest masterpiece in creation 
Is the man or woman who was dead in trespasses and sin, enslaved to the, the ways of the world, the lust of the flesh, and the devil, under the wrath of God, but now has been made alive together with Christ? I mean, these are his ultimate workmanship. You know, his, his masterpiece, his, his work of art. So when Paul says we, meaning all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, when Paul says we are God's workmanship, he's saying that we are God's masterpiece. May not appear that way. <laughs> but you're God's masterpiece. God's masterpiece by virtue of being a new creation in Christ. And of course, we're all in process, so God is continually working in your life and mine to make us more and more like Jesus. He's just, you know, chipping away, chipping away, you know, to, to complete the masterpiece. And one day when we see him face to face, we'll be perfected. But we are God's workmanship. And we were created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. And what is that purpose? What does it say? Good works. Good works. These words express the end that was in view when we were recreated in Christ. And while it's true that we're not saved by good works, it is equally true that we are saved for good works. Or you could say it this way, good works are not the root, but the fruit. We do not work in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And Paul doesn't define good works here, but, but he will describe it for us in, in more detail in the practical section in chapters 4 through 6. But suffice it to say, good works uh, is, is, is a, a general and, and comprehensive expression for godly behavior. And Paul consistently urged those who had experienced God's gracious salvation to lead holy and godly lives. And he urged them to do good under all circumstances. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, Paul said, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Galatians 6.10, Paul said, So then, as we have opportunity, or whenever the opportunity presents itself, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 2.16 and 17, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish them in every good deed and word. In Colossians 1.10, Paul prayed that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul said to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And in Titus 3.8, He said, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And good works are God's design for His new creation. And they flow from His gracious salvation as its consequence or as its fruit. 
So we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, but unlike statues or paintings that that simply adorn the walls and halls of museums, we're designed for action. We're designed for work. You see, God's plan for our lives doesn't end when we believe the message of the gospel and receive eternal salvation by grace through faith apart from works. No, rather our new birth simply marks the beginning of our Christian life as new creatures in Christ who were created in Christ for good works. And far from earning points with God, Paul says our good works are actually God's doing. It's God's grace that made us alive in the first place. It's God's grace that gave us new spiritual desires, motivations, and abilities that enable our good works. That's why Paul says we ourselves are God's workmanship. We're able to work for him because he has worked in us. We are his workmanship. And you'll notice that Paul doesn't merely say that God commands us to do good works or you know, even urges us to do them. He says rather that God created us in Christ Jesus for good works adding that these were specifically prepared beforehand. So before we were even born in eternity past, I mean, works are are a part of God's eternal plan for his people. We're created for them. And so any good works we do have been prepared beforehand by God himself. He not only uh, made us capable of doing good, but he also has ordained our lives and circumstances so that we would have opportunity to do it. So the question is, are our lives marked by good works? And many would have to answer no. Because many today want a comfortable, uh, easy Christianity, one where nothing is required of them. They can just live their life however they please. Come to church and sit and take and take and take and leave and never do anything. Because it's costly. It's messy. God created us in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that we should walk in that. And you'll remember the word walk in its literal sense of going along or moving about on foot at a moderate pace is found numerous times in the gospel. However, the same verb is more often used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament epistles in a metaphorical way. And the metaphorical use of the word walk in the Bible refers to the way an individual lives or conducts his or her life. You know, in this sense, it means to follow a certain course of life or to conduct oneself in a certain way. It simply refers to how you and I live our lives. It refers to our conduct and and our behavior. In other words, our habitual way of life. And so Paul is saying that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is to be our habitual way of life. This is what should characterize our lives as believers. We're to walk this way and and live this way. Why? Well, because we have been made alive. We're new creations in Christ who have been created for this very thing. 
I mean, we're to walk in good works. This is, this is to be the very atmosphere in which we live. And this is stated in such strong language. I mean, works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, this is such strong language that we would be correct in saying that if there are no works in a person's life, uh, the person involved is not justified or not saved. How can you say that? Because James said it. Faith apart from works is what? Dead, doesn't exist. Jesus said, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Because genuine salvation is entirely of God, it inevitably results in a life of good works. I mean, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5.16? Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your what? What? Good works. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As God's workmanship, we are to demonstrate His love and grace to a world that is just engulfed in darkness. And one of the ways we do this is by our good works. I mean, people should be able to look at our lives and see our works and say, that's a work of God. And then give glory to our Father in heaven. And so what does the world see when it looks at your life? What does the world see when it looks at your life? What does the world see when it looks at our church's life? We're told in Scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ went about doing good. And whenever he saw need, he went out of his way to minister to that need. And we should do as Jesus did. Are we to walk as he walked? Paul tells us in Galatians 6 that we're to do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I mean, the gospel of God's grace has come to make us like our Savior. Does your life remind anyone of Jesus? You know, does your life, your actions, your words remind anyone of Jesus? It's God's will that those who belong to the new creation should be characterized by a lifestyle of good works which ultimately reflects his own character and action. And indeed, the instinct of, of one who has new life, the very instinct of one who has new life in Christ is to do good works at home, at work, and everywhere to the glory of God. I mean, clearly, if a person has been created by God specifically to do good works, he will do those good works. Even though they have nothing to do with how he was saved in the first place. 
And in eternity past, God not only chose us to be in a relationship with himself, but he marked out a path for us to walk. And this is a path of good works which should characterize our lives throughout our entire Christian pilgrimage and bring glory to God. God has has before prepared certain things that we're to walk in as believers. And it's our responsibility to find them by the grace of God. But as one old commentator said, some spend all their lives praying, what will you have me to do? But in their days they are found napping. In order to find out the good works he's planned for our individual lives, we should, number one, and confess and forsake sin as soon as we're conscious of it in our lives. Number two, we should be continually and unconditionally yielded to Him. Number three, we should study the Word of God to discern God's will and then do whatever He tells us to do. And listen, God will never ever tell you to do anything that in any way is in conflict or contradicts His Word. So study the Word of God to discern His will and then do whatever He tells you to do. Number four, spend time in prayer each day. And then number five, seize every opportunity of service uh, when it arises. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, look around. And there's no lack of things to do. And cultivate the fellowship and counsel of other Christians. I mean, God prepares us for good works. He prepares good works for us to perform. And then you know the the amazing thing? Then he rewards us when we perform. Such is his grace. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God in his sovereignty had good works in mind when he chose us for salvation and and planned that we should walk in them. And notice the last line and compare it then with verse 2. That we should walk in them and then compare it with verse 2, end of verse 2, which says, in which you once walked. This forms what's called an inclusio or bookends. In other words, we've made the full loop. We once walked in darkness, being controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil, but God made us alive. By grace, we have been saved through faith in Christ, and now we're walking in Christ, doing good works, which he prepared for us beforehand. Let me ask you something. Do you know this grace? Do you know this grace of which we've been speaking? If so, then you can absolutely identify with John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who said this, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I say, I am not what I once was, a slave. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, 
a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if you have experienced the grace and mercy of God in your life, you can absolutely uh, identify with John Newton. And if not, then perhaps it's because you've never uh, experienced God's saving grace. You've never been saved by grace through faith. And if that's the case, I mean, our, our prayer and our desire would be that you would believe the gospel and that you would come to faith in Christ. And as I said earlier, uh, to come to faith in Christ means believing certain things. And it begins with God. And God is our holy creator. And we are his creatures, and therefore God has every right to tell us how we're to live, and he has in his word. you know what I'm going to say next. Though God has told us how we're supposed to live, man has rebelled against God. And we haven't lived according to his word. We have sinned by breaking God's holy law. And therefore, if we die in that condition, we will not only face God as our holy creator, but we also face him as our righteous judge who will condemn us to an eternal hell because we have committed treason against the king of heaven. That's what sin is. Just one sin is high treason against the king of kings. And it's deserving of eternal punishment in hell. And that is the state that all men and women in are, are in apart from Christ. You've sinned against your creator. You've broken his law. And you're going to face him as your eternal judge. That is a bleak and very dark picture. But it's true. That is the condition of every single person apart from Jesus Christ. But God, who is not, God is not only our holy creator and our righteous judge. God is also loving, merciful, gracious, and kind. And as we've learned in Ephesians 2, because he is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, God has provided a way in which man can have his sin forgiven and be reconciled to a holy God. But for that to happen, somebody has to die. Because God said the wages of sin is death. That's never changed. The wages of sin is is death. That's the penalty for sin. And all sin must be paid for. So somebody has to die. But for somebody to have to die, that means they would have to be perfect and, and sinless. Absolutely perfect. Absolutely holy. Well, no one like that could be found on the earth. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what did God do? God provided his own sacrifice for sin. God provided his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus humbled himself to a degree that we will never be able to comprehend. And he stepped out of heaven, stepped out of eternity into time, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, lived in utter obscurity for almost 30 years, 
and then ministered for three. But during his entire life, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He was absolutely without sin. The writer of Hebrews says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. So Jesus came, took on humanity. He was, he was fully God and fully man. And he lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live and can, can never live. He lived the life that we should have lived. And then, though he had committed no sin or no crime, being falsely accused, he went to the cross. And there he was crucified. And Jesus died for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for our sin. He lived the perfect sinless life we could never live. And then he died the death that we deserve. He really died. And he was buried as proof of that. He was buried and in the tomb for three days. And on the third day, God raised Jesus for our justification. In other words, Uh, God raising Jesus showed that he accepted Christ's sacrifice. He raised him from the dead. He was here for 40 days, ascended back to heaven, and he's there today, seated at the right hand of the Father in all of his power and glory. He's making intercession for all of those who belong to him, and one day he's going to return and take all of us to be with him. So that's the good news of the gospel. Well, then how do you appropriate that for yourself? Through faith, like we learned today. You ask God to save you. And you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You you believe in, trust in, cling to Christ's finished work upon the cross, His death, burial, and resurrection as your only hope of salvation. And you cry out to Him to save you. And we know that everyone that calls in the name of the Lord in this way will be saved, right? Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God will save you. He will forgive your sin. He gives you a new life in Christ. You'll be a new creature, right? Old things will have passed away. Uh, All things are new. New creation in Christ Jesus created for good works in Christ. And then he will enable and empower you to live the life that he's called you to live for his glory for the rest of your time on earth. And so God, through me today, is calling you to come to faith in Christ. And there's no doubt that there are people here who have never been born again. Could be a visitor, could be someone who's been here for a long time. You've just been living a lie, living a religious, moral life, but you've never been born again. And God is calling you today to trust in Christ and in Him alone. Because that is your only hope of salvation. So if you've never trusted in Christ, we I'm begging you. Trust in Him. Trust in Christ. I mean, today the Bible says is the day of salvation. We don't know how long we have. That's not that's not uh, meant to frighten anyone. That's just the that's just reality. We're all heartbeat away from death. One broken blood vessel away from death. One car accident away from death. One tree falling on us away from death. Trust in Christ. 
On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set